What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. I hope everyone had a great weekend. We got three things to talk about today. Number one, Lewis Hamilton leaving Mercedes to go to Ferrari. I'm going to run you guys through all of the details and talk about why this is going to be worth billions of dollars to Ferrari in the long run. Number two, the World Cup. 2026 FIFA Men's World Cup is coming to North America, and the schedule officially got released this past weekend. We now know where all of the games are going to be played, including the quarterfinals, semifinals, and the final. I'll walk you guys through the schedule and some pros and cons that I've seen so far of each of the games. And last but not least, it's Super Bowl week. I did an interview with Cheddar News this morning. We talked about viewership. We talked about sponsorships. We talked about betting, ticket sales, and everything else in between. So I'll run you guys through some high-level thoughts, and we'll get more into it as the week progresses on Wednesday and Friday leading up to the big game. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode, so let's get right into it. All right, so let's start with Lewis Hamilton leaving Mercedes to go to Ferrari. I mean, this news absolutely shocked the sports world last weekend, specifically motorsports. Lewis Hamilton is one of the most popular athletes in the world today. I mean, he's got tens of millions of followers on social media platforms. He is extremely, extremely, extremely wealthy, and he is quite arguably the greatest Formula One driver of all time. So him leaving Mercedes after a decade to go to a rival in Ferrari, an iconic organization like Ferrari, is obviously a big deal. Now, I don't want to run through all the financial details because I wrote a newsletter about this on Monday, and if you want to read it all, you can go there. Pretty simple. Just go to readhuddleup.com, read the entire newsletter. It breaks down everything from how much he made for Mercedes and Total Wolf over the last few years to how he's going to have an even greater impact at Ferrari. I talked through their limited supply business model, their revenue and valuation growth, and Hamilton's long-term impact on the brand. But the most important things that you guys need to know is that Mercedes Formula One team has grown significantly since Lewis Hamilton joined in 2013. They received about 25% of all TV time during their championship winning seasons. Now, you guys know these races have around 100 million viewers per race. We're talking about 20 plus Super Bowls every single year. And considering the Mercedes team was so good, they were receiving 25% of all TV time. Obviously, the brand exposure alone was worth an incredible amount of money. But the team has seen its headcount increase from 660 people in 2013 to more than 1,100 today. They now do $700 million in annual revenue compared to $200 million when Hamilton arrived. And the team went from losing hundreds of millions of dollars every single year to an estimated $200 million in profit last year. Now, of course, there are other factors at play. I mean, Liberty Media acquired the sport. They implemented a cost cap. We could talk about Drive to Survive and everything else. There were other things at play. But still, the results are undeniable. The Mercedes F1 team has seen its valuation increase from less than $400 million in 2013 to $3.8 billion today. That's an 877% increase. And get this, no one is happier about it than Toto Wolff. The team principal at Mercedes bought a 30% stake in the team for $30 million when he joined his team principal in 2013. That equity stake alone, Toto Wolff's 30% stake, is now valued at $1.1 billion. So he literally turned $30 million into $1.1 billion, riding the back of Formula One, Liberty Media, Lewis Hamilton, and everything else. Tremendous value that he has gained over the last decade because of everything circling in and around the sport. And that's precisely why Ferrari is going to pay Lewis Hamilton $100 million annually. I mean, we know how Ferrari works at this point. It's one of the reasons why it's my favorite case study in sports is because they don't do any money. They don't spend any money on traditional advertising. Instead, they commit hundreds of millions of dollars to the Ferrari F1 racing team knowing that if they build a fast car and win races, millions of people will fall in love with the brand and it will generate unlimited demand. This is why they have 400 million fans globally, and it's also why they continue to set record after record after record every single year shipping more and more cars. But this is the most interesting part to me because last year they only shipped 
just over 13,000 cars. Now, that may seem like a lot, but it's not. I mean, if you compare to their competitors, Mercedes-Benz, they ship more than 2 million cars annually. And if you look at all the other companies, I mean, GM, Ford, everyone else like that, they're shipping millions and millions and millions and millions of cars every single year. Now, Ferrari is doing this on purpose. They're intentionally limiting the supply because they know the demand will outpace it, and it will become a luxurious demand brand. And that's exactly what has happened. They've used Formula One to do this, and Lewis Hamilton is going to help them not only sell cars, but help them in all their other businesses too. We're talking about restaurants. We're talking about fashion. We're talking about selling clothes, obviously, and everything else alongside of that. He is the perfect partner for Ferrari at this stage of his career because he is the most famous Formula One driver of all time. He dominates 21st century digital platforms like Instagram, like Twitter, like everything else. And he will instantly attract more people to the Ferrari brand and eventually be worth billions of dollars to the company. Again, if you guys want to read the entire breakdown on Lewis Hamilton moving from Mercedes to Ferrari, go to readhuddleup.com and you can read it there. All right, the second topic we're going to be talking about today is the 2026 FIFA Men's World Cup that's going to be taking place in North America. It's going to be co-hosted by the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. There's 48 teams competing in it, and this past weekend, we got told by FIFA where all of the matches will be held. Now, there's a few different things to point out here. If you want to talk about the U.S. men's national team specifically, they're opening up their World Cup schedule on June 12th at SoFi Stadium. Then they have a match on June 19th, a week later, at Lumen Field in Seattle. And then they have a match another week after that back at SoFi Stadium. So they'll be in uh, L.A., Seattle, L.A. But outside of that, we know where all the biggest matches are now going to be held. I don't want to walk through every single match here because you guys know there are a bunch of different matches across the World Cup. If we want to look about the U.S. specifically, Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, um, Houston, Dallas, Kansas City, Atlanta, Miami, Toronto, Boston, Philadelphia, New York, New Jersey are all holding matches as well. And then there's international places too. We're talking about Guadalajara, Mexico City, Monterey, and other places like that, including Vancouver. So most of these games are going to be held in the U.S. Canada got 13 matches. Mexico got 13 matches, including the opening match. And the U.S. itself will be hosting 78 out of 104 games, including all. The U.S. is getting all of the quarterfinals, semifinals, and of course, the final. So if we look at the quarterfinals to start, SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles will be hosting one match. Gillette Stadium in Boston, where the Patriots play, will be hosting another match. Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City, where the Chiefs play, will be hosting a match. And Hard Rock Stadium, where the Dolphins play, in Miami, will be hosting a quarterfinal match as well. So those are the four quarterfinals. Then we move to the semifinals. We have AT&T Stadium in Dallas. We'll get a semifinal. And Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. And then those two teams will meet for the final in MetLife Stadium in New Jersey, right? Right outside of New York City, East Rutherford, New Jersey. MetLife Stadium will be hosting the 2026 FIFA Men's World Cup final. So if you look at all of the venues, Dallas actually has the most matches. They have nine matches, including all the group stage stuff and uh, the semifinals. And again, 78 out of 104 games will be held in the United States. So let's talk about the final specifically, because I was tweeting a lot about this on Sunday. Some people agreed, some people didn't. But I want to talk through my thoughts and see what you guys think. Now, it's no secret that leading up to this, I thought Dallas was actually going to get the final. The reasons I thought about that have been well publicized at this point. It was between Los Angeles, New York City, and Dallas. And Dallas didn't have everything positive. I mean, if you think about public transportation in general, Dallas was lacking that. Right. I thought, though, that they had a big stadium. I thought that they could control the temperature because it was indoor. I thought they had big international airports. I thought that uh, they had the infrastructure to support the game. And I thought that ultimately Jerry Jones would find a way to work with FIFA to get them the game. 
Obviously, we know FIFA ends up usually going with whoever pays them the most money or who bribes them or who does any of this stuff. And Jerry Jones, theoretically, would be the person to go and do that. Now, it didn't end up in Dallas and it didn't end up in LA either. It ended up in MetLife Stadium in New York slash New Jersey. And there's a bunch of positives with that. I mean, if you think about New York specifically, that city alone has more positives than any city in the country when it comes to hosting this final. It's a massive media market. It's the world's biggest international city, specifically here within the United States. They have a million hotels. They have three different airports people can fly into. They have mass transportation, including a subway system and a train that literally lets you out right in front of the stadium. They also are the best time zone relative to European viewers. And it's a massive stadium. I think it sees 85,000 people and it's outdoor where people would argue soccer or football is meant to be played. But again, again, while they have all of those positives, MetLife Stadium itself it's just not very nice. I mean, I can say this as a Giants fan. I've been to that stadium as more times than I would like to imagine. The public transportation to and from the stadium is an absolute disaster. I mean, that thing is absolutely packed. It's in no way going to be able to support a million people traveling in. And for Giants games specifically, a lot of people tailgate, right? They drive to the game. So when it's crowded like that, that's a fraction of the people that are actually going to be using this for the World Cup final. Now, one of the caveats to this is obviously that they're going to increase transportation. Like any other stadium that gets a World Cup match, the cities are going to be using buses and rideshare and taxis and everything else to get people to the game. That wasn't going to be a problem in Dallas or LA or Boston or Kansas City or Miami or Atlanta. All of these cities were going to figure out a way to transport people to and from the game with mass transportation, buses and everything else like that. So I think the argument that that is why New York City got it is ridiculous. That's not why New York City got it. New York City got it because it makes the most sense from a city standpoint. But I would say about that is that MetLife Stadium, again, it's just not very nice. If you look at all the new stadiums that we've built here in the United States, SoFi Stadium for number one is the nicest stadium I've ever been to in my entire life. I think it's probably the nicest sports stadium in the entire world. Bar none. I'm not kidding. I went there for the Super Bowl a few years ago. It's absolutely incredible. You walk in on the top floor, Everything else is below you. It's built into the ground, state of the art. The ceiling looks like it's made of pure glass. I mean, the, the, the picture on TV is absolutely incredible. The elements are great. You're right there in Los Angeles. It's only a few miles from the airport. People were joking that you could literally walk there if you didn't have transportation. And it's true. SoFi Stadium is absolutely incredible, but they're not the only one. If you think about AT&T Stadium, AT&T Stadium in Dallas is actually older than MetLife Stadium. MetLife Stadium was built more recently than AT&T Stadium. But AT&T Stadium is far nicer. I mean, MetLife Stadium, uh, The Athletic did a ranking a while back. They asked a bunch of NFL players and executives and everyone else like that to rank their top NFL stadiums. MetLife Stadium ranked 25th. They ranked 25th out of 30 stadiums because obviously some teams share them. They ranked 25th out of 30 stadiums. The only stadiums that were worse were FedEx Field in Washington, TIAA Bank Field for the Jacksonville Jaguars, Hard Rock Stadium in Miami, who got the third place game and also a quarterfinal, and Paycor Stadium in Cincinnati, and the Caesars Superdome in New Orleans. So MetLife Stadium is one of the worst stadiums in the country. Now, part of this, specifically with the NFL, is because of the turf. People don't like the turf. Players complain about it in the injuries. Now, all of these stadiums are going to have to replace the turf with grass for these games. It's a FIFA requirement. And it's nothing new. I mean, MetLife Stadium hosted a match between Manchester United and Arsenal, a friendly, uh, this past summer in July, I believe it was. And they tore up the turf for that. They put in grass. They do it all the time for these friendlies and these games that come over because they get 85,000 fans and it's well worth it from a revenue perspective to charge a million dollars to change out the turf into grass and do that for one specific game and then change it back to turf for the season. 
And players are obviously pissed about it. I saw players and uh, representatives from the NFLPA were reaching out and saying about how they're going to use this in negotiations because in 2026, all of the stadiums, AT&T Stadium, SoFi, Mercedes-Benz, all of these stadiums are going to switch out their turf for natural grass just so the World Cup can play there. That's great. That's awesome. Cool. My argument is just that there's just so many better, nicer stadiums than MetLife. And when people come to the U.S., you want to show off our best. And MetLife Stadium is certainly not that. I mean, I joked when this got announced. I tweeted out. I said, uh, breaking news, the World Cup final is going to be at MetLife Stadium in East Rutherford, right outside of New York City. It got chosen over SoFi Stadium in LA, and it got chosen over AT&T Stadium in Dallas. I just put a picture. I just Googled MetLife Stadium, selected a picture that made sense, and put it out there. And I didn't even realize at the time, but now I laugh at it because if you look at the picture, I mean, there is just nothing around MetLife Stadium. It's just a parking lot. And when they say the European mind cannot comprehend this, the European mind literally could not comprehend this. They're like, why do Americans do this? This is silly. You can't walk to the matches. It's going to be impossible to get into and out of. And I get all of that. And I just think there was just so many better options. If you think about the stadiums that have been built over the last decade in the US, again, SoFi Stadium, beautiful. AT&T Stadium, awesome. Mercedes-Benz Stadium, is incredible. I'm surprised that they only got one big match with the semifinal being held there. I mean, that stadium is huge. They pack it out all the time for MLS games. They have a bunch of international uh, airports in different cities around there too. It would have been a great place to host the final, I think, in Atlanta as well, given that the time zone is also on the East Coast as well. But there's other stadiums too. I mean, U.S. Bank probably wasn't going to get one uh, in Minneapolis, but you have Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas, which is a little bit smaller at 65,000 seats compared to 85,000 seats. But again, a great venue. So good that they're hosting the Super Bowl there. So you guys get my point. I don't want to go on and on and on. The World Cup final being held in New York City, right outside of New York City, I guess, is awesome. It's going to be great. It's going to be one of the most expensive tickets in U.S. sports history. It's going to be cool. I'm going to watch. I may even try to go. But ultimately, I just think that they could have picked better stadiums given the venues that we had available in the United States. The United States, more than any country in the world, prioritizes sports venues. They built some of the nicest venues in the world. I mean, SoFi Stadium, again, is a $5 billion venue. There's not another country in the world that would even consider spending that much money on one individual stadium. It's by far, in a way, the most expensive sports stadium in the world. And I think that FIFA and the U.S. in general could have just done a better job showcasing some of these venues by hosting a game like the final there rather than MetLife Stadium. All right, the last thing I want to get in today is some Super Bowl stuff. Now, I don't want to go too deep into it because we're going to be talking about this all week. I'm planning on doing a newsletter uh, and a podcast and a breakdown on Twitter of the Super Bowl halftime show later this week. I'm going to talk through, obviously, the field conditions, uh, ticket sales, everything else. I'll give you guys updates towards the end of the week. I really want to do like a segment where I just break down the coolest facts and the coolest information and things that I'm hearing on the ground uh, in Las Vegas specifically because I think it will give you guys a lot of really good insights to share with family and friends this weekend. But more to come. Just sign up for the newsletter. Again, read huddleup.com, and you guys will have access to all that stuff later in the week. But today, I want to talk about a few different things that I run through that I ran through on television uh, for Cheddar News this morning. Now, we talked about a whole host of things, but let's just get into a couple. We'll start with the ticket prices. So it's no secret that the tickets are really expensive for the Super Bowl. When the game initially got uh, announced, when it was found out that the 49ers were going to be facing the Chiefs in the Super Bowl, I logged online. I went to TickPick, which is, uh, in my opinion, the best ticketing service today. You can go on. They have all their fees included. So unlike you know SeatGeek or Ticketmaster or any of these other places— the price you see is the price you're actually going to pay, which is which is quite nice. This is not an ad. It's just you know something that I appreciate about their website. But when I logged on to TickPick, I go in there, and I saw that the cheapest ticket, nosebleed seats, was like $9,000 to go to this game. 
Now, this is one of the things that many people complain about when it comes to the Super Bowl is that it's just become too corporate. Again, I've been to the Super Bowl. I went with a sponsor multiple years ago, and it was very corporate. There's not like a huge feel to it. In my opinion, the AFC, NFC championship games, the divisional games, matches like that or games like that are much more, uh, the atmosphere is much better than you would find at the Super Bowl. It's very corporate. The ticket prices are extremely expensive because of that. And in a lot of cases, the average fan or the real fans get priced out. I mean, requesting someone to pay $9,000 for nosebleed seats, you're not going to go alone. So now you're talking $18,000, $27,000, $36,000 to go to the Super Bowl is outrageous. I mean, that's a rich person's event, and it's ludicrous that the NFL is getting people to pay that. But the price has come down a little bit over the last few days. Now we're at around 7000 which albeit is still a tremendous amount. But many people are asking me why tickets are so expensive. We're on pace to be the most expensive uh, Super Bowl of all time at this point. And I think there's a few things. Let's start with the obvious, just Las Vegas. Las Vegas is expensive in general, but specifically when it comes to sports, Las Vegas went from being a zero to a hero over just a number of years. I mean, if you think about the NFL, they obviously got the Raiders to move there from Oakland, which was huge. The NFL is king in the U.S., but also they have a hockey team that won the Stanley Cup. They're getting a baseball team now with the Oakland A's moving there. And everyone, it seems like it's a foregone conclusion at this point that you talk to in and around the NBA that an NBA expansion team will eventually end in Las Vegas and probably be part owned at least by LeBron James. So that's going to be huge. They also got Formula One. They have a bunch of other events too, including this year's Super Bowl. So I think just being in Las Vegas naturally makes it a little bit more expensive as it's the first ever Super Bowl in Las Vegas. But number two, and perhaps more importantly, is just supply and demand. If you think about the stadium that it's being held in, Allegiant Stadium, is brand new. They have the most expensive tickets in the NFL this year, and they have one of the smallest capacities in the NFL. Their stadium ranks 27th in capacity out of 30 NFL stadiums. So that's 65,000 seats they have. So on a pure supply and demand perspective, there's just a gross misbalance and for that reason, ticket prices continue to increase and are going to set a record this year because only 65,000 people can attend the game. It's in Las Vegas. And again, it's a huge corporate event where people are buying suites and they're buying tickets and they're buying all these things. I mean, I joked about it on Twitter last week. I put a picture up. If you go on, I believe it's sweetexperiences.com, you can see the different suites that are set up for the Super Bowl. And one of them gives you 20 tickets. You only have 12 seats and there's a couple bar stools, but you get 20 tickets and two parking passes. It's on the corner of the stadium, so you get a decent view, but it's not center. And it costs $2.5 million right now. $2.5 million. I mean, we're talking about over $100,000 per ticket, per ticket for that. And by the way, only two people get parking passes. It's absolutely ridiculous at this point. And I think it's something that over time hopefully corrects itself because people love going to the Super Bowl. If your team is in it specifically, it's a bucket list item. And it's one of those things that it's just a memory you're going to create for a lifetime. But just because it's that good of a memory doesn't mean that you should go bankrupt for it. All right, number two, let's talk about viewership. This was something that I talked about on CNBC last week as well, but I want to dig into a little bit here. The over-under for this year in my mind is 115 million viewers. That's right about where we were last year. It set an all-time record last year on Fox, and this year CBS has the game and is hoping to break that record as well. In my personal opinion, again, this is just me, I think that we're going to break that record. I think this year's Super Bowl will be the most watched Super Bowl of all time. I think it's going to get over 115. If I had to guess, maybe close to 120 or even more than that. And part of this, I think, is a narrative. If you think about the Kansas City Chiefs specifically this year, what has happened with them? This narrative has been building all year long for the Chiefs to set dominant viewership numbers. Now, obviously, part of this has to do with Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, but part of it has to do with Mahomes and becoming the GOAT or the eventual GOAT over time if he wins another Super Bowl and everything else that goes along with this team. And I'm not just making this up. The numbers prove this. 
if you look at the Chiefs' last two games, they played the Buffalo Bills in the divisional round. That game had 50 million viewers. That was a record for AFC divisional matchup. Then the next week, they played the AFC championship game against the Baltimore Ravens. That game had 55 million viewers, which again was another record for an AFC championship game. And I think they're going to continue that streak for the third game in a row in the Super Bowl, beating 115 million viewers. Now, again, all of that plays into this. But more importantly, and I think this is the part that a lot of people leave out if you're not an expert in TV ratings, is that the fundamental way that these ratings are calculated has changed over the last few years. Many of you have heard of Nielsen. Nielsen is the company that does these ratings. Nielsen changed the way that they calculate these ratings a few years ago. And what Nielsen did is they added something called out-of-home viewership. And out-of-home viewership is essentially just anyone who watches the game outside of their home. So we're talking about bars, restaurants, airports, and watch parties. Now, this number is specifically important because it adds a lot of viewership on big games where people would watch them together. So if you think about Thanksgiving Day earlier this year for the NFL, out-of-home viewership contributed about 10 to 15 million viewers that weren't included in these numbers four years ago. So when we're comparing apples to oranges, that's why you're seeing record after record after record. It literally feels like every single week with the NFL and other sports, you're seeing viewership records. And it's because the way that the numbers are calculated has fundamentally changed, and it's increasing. And the comparisons year over year are not accurate anymore. Now, this isn't a bad thing. I would actually argue that the numbers are more accurate today than they were in the beginning. That's a good thing. But ultimately, you just can't compare this year versus 2018 or 2015 or 2010 or anything else like that because the way that the numbers are calculated gives a strategic advantage to now versus the past. And that's the main reason why I think we're going to end up seeing another viewership record for the Super Bowl this year. These numbers have changed. The narrative has changed, obviously, around the Chiefs and even the 49ers getting back to the Super Bowl again in a rematch of what we saw a few years ago. I think we're going to see over 115 million viewers, closer to 120 or even 125, potentially. It's going to be massive, and that's great for everyone involved. I mean, we're talking about the different companies that are advertising. Commercials are going for $7 million. Another thing that I thought was very interesting was Variety reported the other day that um, CBS offered all of the advertisers that were buying the 6 to $7 million 30-second commercials for the Super Bowl the right to have their inventory on the simulcast on Nickelodeon and Paramount+. Plus. And that's awesome. You're, you know, obviously the Super Bowl on, on CBS is the big viewership channel, but if you can have ancillary inventory like that where some other people might watch the game, that's great. That's cool. But obviously they can't show sports betting or alcohol or anything of that nature on Nickelodeon. So they're selling uh, like 10 to 15 other commercials for about $200,000 to $300,000 on Nickelodeon. So they've sold out of those as well. And it's a way where they can generate a little bit of additional inventory and ultimately revenue for the networks as well while they do simulcast with a different you know crew on, on Nickelodeon versus CBS, of course. So that's another thing to watch out. Um, and then ultimately, one of the other things that I think is interesting is just sports betting. Sports betting has dominated the market over the last few years since Passport was repealed in 2018. And now that we're holding this game in Las Vegas, I mean, I don't think if I don't know if anyone saw this coming, right? Everyone knows that Las Vegas was kind of this taboo thing that the NFL never wanted to deal with. They actually prohibited players from uh, going to conventions there and speaking at fantasy football events and gambling for sure, but everything else alongside that as well. And now what we're seeing with Las Vegas is it's this culmination of what's happened in sports betting over the last few years. They claim the American Gaming Association claims that 50 million people bet on last year's game. That number is obviously going to increase again this year as more people get comfortable with betting, as more states are legalized and everything on top of that. But they're also projecting that 1.3 billion people or $1.3 billion, sorry, will be bet on this game. That's a 20% increase year over year. And that number is going to climb and climb and climb and climb. And it's another reason why we see companies like FanDuel and DraftKings and everyone else alongside that 
spending a lot of money during the game, around the game, in Las Vegas, on social media, and everywhere else around the Super Bowl because they know how big of an experience it is when it comes to gambling and football. It's going to be absolutely massive, and I'm looking forward to it. But like I told you guys, I'm going to be breaking down much more about the Super Bowl in two different episodes later this week. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode today, and I'll talk to you guys later this week.